Hey friends, if you have ideas for themes that you would like to see featured on this podcast, please write to us with your suggestion and possible guests to nicechats at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Now enjoy the show. Hello, my fellow geoscience aficionados. You are listening to Nice Chats from the Geology Podcast Network. I am Dr. B, and in each episode I will interview an expert in various areas in geoscience and share with you a little bit of their knowledge and expertise in the research of geological problems. Each of our episodes has a central theme, and since we'll have an expert walk us through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we'll be talking about. As long as you're passionate about the study of geology, I, with the help of our guest, will take care of feeding you all the information you need in a casual and fun environment. Today we're talking with isotope geochemist and Nice Chats producer Dr. Bryant Ware. Bryant and I met while we were both PhD students at Curtin, and we became best friends. Friends. Best friends. <laughs> Bryant works with a bunch of different isotopes, uh, yet somehow he hasn't developed any superpowers yet. Or has he? Is he trying to hide something from us? Today we'll chat about how we can use isotopes to help us understand geological processes. And if you don't quite remember what an isotope is, fear not. That is my first question to Bryant. Hey, Bryant, welcome, and uh, let's talk about some isotopes today, huh? Ah, great. <laughs> All right, so as ev listeners uh, of this podcast will know, we always like to start uh, with a little game to break the ice. I came up with an excellent new title for the game called Newly Grad. So newly grad basically is a take on the newlywed game, where the participants try to answer questions about each other's careers and preferences. Now the twist this time is that Sylvia is actually going to step in and play host, and Bryant and I will play this game together. And you know I'm sure we'll do fine because we are best friends. Well, friends. <laughs> actually, best friends. Okay, Bryant. So, Sylvia, please take it away. Well, this is gonna be great fun. Finally, Dr. B is gonna be on the other side. <laughs> okay, so let's get the game started. Although, to be, f to be fair, I want to highlight uh, for the audience that you're not only best friend, but you also did your PhD in the same department. So I'm definitely expecting you guys to nail each other answers. <laughs> And then I can compare my answer with Brian's, as I probably should know most of my husband's favorites. <laughs> But let's see how it goes. So we'll start with Bryant. Bryant, what is Vitor's favorite rock? 
favorite rock? Ooh, uh, I'll go with I'll go with an orbicular granite that I gifted y'all. Oh, that's actually a good guess. I mean, that's a pretty easy one because I just recently posted, like, you know, what my pet granite was on the <laughs> Mineralogy Society from Italy uh, on the, on Twitter. So, I mean... Uh-oh. Caught. I follow your Twitter. So, Vitor, do you agree with Brian's answer? Yeah, dude, I already said that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Vitor, what is Brian's favorite rock? Okay, Brian's favorite rock, um, I don't know, like basalt, maybe? I mean, he's worked a ton with basalt, so it has to be his favorite, come on. Myself, have spent quite a bit of time with Bryant in the field, uh, back in 2008, I think. Um, 2008? Sorry, 18, 2018. <laughs> okay. I was like, man, that's when I got into geology. <laughs> I know you guys went way back. <laughs> and um, I might have a guess on that. So instead of basalts, I would say diorite. Diorite, okay. So what would you say, Brian? Uh, that is tough. My heart is torn. I did my PhD on dollarites, which is uh, basaltic material uh, geochemically. But I also did my master's on diorite, so it is a, blit, a bit of a split heart there. So let's say we're both right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the next question is that, so here we go back to the pre-PhD life when you guys still didn't know each other. But I'm sure you can have a good guess on what was Brian's favorite subject at uni. Geochemistry, I guess. Well, that's a good guess. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, is that correct? That is correct. Geochemistry ah. was my favorite. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Good guess, Vitor. <laughs> and Brian, any good guess of Vitor's favorite subject at uni? Ooh. I kind of want to say geochemistry from where he ended up, but I also feel like this could be a trick question. I'm going to go with, oh, I'll change it. I'll go with, oh, uh, or geology. Okay. Or geology. What do you uh, think, Sylvia? So I would say probably used to be at the beginning structural geology, but then it turned more into economic geology afterwards. But it started as a structural geology for, I think. Yeah, so definitely structural geology was what captured my heart doing uh, undergrad. And then just, I kind of like naturally went towards economic geology and geochemistry, especially isotopic geochemistry, which like currently that's my favorite subject. Yeah. <laughs> I really, really liked the structural geology when I was an undergrad, even though I didn't really get like that good of a grade <laughs> when I was doing the course. But then I did like an elective afterwards for a structural analysis. And that's when I really like uh, found it interesting and engaging. And I, and I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah when, when I, uh, when I first started geology, structural geology was, was my favorite as well. 
because I I absolutely disliked chemistry class. Oh really? Just really yeah, that's didn't so funny. like yeah, just didn't like chemistry class. Uh, but then when I when I took a geochemistry class, so I guess just applying that chemistry uh, to geology, that's when that's when uh, it really sunk for me, and then I I uh, changed allegiances, I guess. This question might be a bit tricky. Um, so Brian, do you have a good guess of which one is Vitter's first author most cited paper? Uh, I'm gonna go with the uh, 40 history of uh, the Nimbus one. <laughs> Wrong. No. So this is actually ah, no. <laughs> the, the, the paper that Brian's referred to is actually one of the paper of Vitor's PhD that was just published last year. And it's a damn good paper, might I add? <laughs> so we're going to put the link in the notes so you can go check it out. But <laughs> Vitor's most cited paper actually goes back to 2017 and is um, uh, from his master and is uh, um, titled The Proterozoic Guanyais Banded Iron Formations, Southeastern Border of the São Francisco Craton, Brazil, Evidence of Detrital Contaminations. Yeah, and um, I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that paper, although like, you know, I wasn't as mature of a researcher as I am now, and obviously I'm still evolving. But um, I really like that paper. It's the result of my master's um, my master's research, and it's it's open access in a very um, local Brazilian journal. But because it's open access, everybody can can enjoy it. So yeah, so we will put also uh, the link for this uh, paper in the notes and go check it out. So same question for you, Vitor. What is Brian's most cited first author paper? This is a really this is a really hard one for me because I know all the three papers that Brian got from his PhD, and I'm guessing it's one of those. Um, I I know that I know what what journals they he published on. So he published one in EPSL, one in GCA, and one in JPAT. I know that he published one about the pyroxene, the argon-argon dating of pyroxene. He published one on um, Karoo and one on um, Karangini. Kalkarangi. Kalkarangi, sorry, Kalkarangi. <laughs> However, I don't know like which is which. <laughs> so I know that those are like three things. So, but I think that his... Um, his most cited one will probably be Karu, I think. No, actually, it's the Pyroxene one. Really, yes. man? I like I I thought about going with the Pyroxene one because <laughs> um, it's very you know it's a very cool and innovative paper. But I just thought that there hasn't been that much done in the field since. So there wouldn't be a lot of citation, but, you know, obviously I was wrong. Yeah, and Karoo's a good bet because there's a lot of study going on on the Karoo Large Igneous Province, so. Well, although, like, you didn't answer correctly, it's quite impressive that you know the record of Brian's PhD papers. 
So that's really like impressive as best friends. Well, it's actually not that impressive because Brian just wouldn't shut up about his papers and his studies. So I learned everything. <laughs> so just to, um, for the audience, Brian's most cited paper is Argon-Argon Geochronology of Terrestrial Pyroxene, published in Geochemica at Ge Cosmochemica Acta in 2018. And we'll which put, is GCA. Which is GCA. And we'll put the link in the notes so for you to check it out because it's very interesting. I knew we would excel at this game. Look at that! Two best friends doing best friend stuff. Me and my best friend would like to ask you now to follow my page on Twitter and Instagram at GeoDrB. That is G-E-O-D-R-B. And share the Nice Chats podcast with your friends. Rate and review if you like it. Let's go talk with Bryant about some isotopes now. Come on. So, Bryant, you are an isotope geochemist from Curtin University in Australia. So, I guess my first question for you, and although I kind of, I know the answer to this question, but maybe some of our listeners don't, is what exactly is an isotope? Oh yeah, that is an excellent question. An isotope is, all right, let's, let's take a step back. So we have elements, we have elements, everybody in through school has probably looked at an element or looked at the periodic table of elements. And what an isotope is, is, each element has a specific uh, number of protons. That's what makes the element an element. So lead will always have that amount of protons as opposed to the amount of protons uranium has. But what can vary is the neutrons, the number of neutrons. So again, the number of protons is always set. If you change the protons, then it's now a different element. But if you change the number of neutrons, what you get are different isotopes. So it's still lead, but the mass is slightly different. So you have 206 lead, 207 lead, 208 lead, maybe 204 lead. All the proton numbers are the same, but the neutrons are changing. Right, okay. And um, so basically the difference between the geochemistry that me personally, I've learned during my geology course, where you know I use basically the concentration of different elements. So, you know, the, the amount of... Um, potassium or, or calcium or even the oxides uh, in the rock, the, the basic difference between classic geochemistry and isotopic geochemistry is, uh, is merely that instead of focusing on different elements, you're actually looking into each of the isotopes that, um, that um, form uh, these different elements. So you're actually looking at, you know, an even smaller fraction of each um, element that... Uh, that forms a rock, for example. Yeah, exactly. We're getting to a very, very small scale of looking at neutron differences in the masses. Right, and, and, the, and the interest in looking to, into different isotopes of the same, same element, for example, is, to, is because um, each of these isotopes can actually behave differently from, from the other, right? So, so for example, 
so so you know like the 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 size of the of the of each of these isotopes because they have different masses the size of the of the different isotopes or you know the the fact that one oxidizes or not um, all of that can be used to try and understand the conditions that were in place uh, when when your system was formed with the radiogenic isotopes basically one isotope can become the other one over time like like uh, uranium and lead right it, it, that's that's basically what a, what a radiogenic isotope is, isn't it? With radiogenic isotope, we can date rocks. They are unstable isotopes that decay at a known rate to a different isotope. And because we know that decay rate, we can then measure that parent isotope and the daughter isotope. And that's how we can determine ages of rocks. Using the uranium lead system again, what's great about that system is uh, two different isotopes of uranium decay to two different isotopes of lead. And then also thorium decays to another isotope of lead. So then you get differences between the behavior of uranium in a geologic process and the behavior of thorium in a geologic process that can then tell you different things based on uh, the amount of 208 lead, which decays from thorium, and the amount of 207 and 206 lead that decays from uranium. So it really comes into, yeah, those differences in the masses of these isotopes and behaving differently. Zircon definitely is, let's say, the gold standard for geochronology and high-precision geochronology, and particularly here at Curtin, it's, it's basically king. The, the reason for that is because the uranium-lead system is very well known. It's very well understood. Again, having those two different isotopes of uranium go to two different isotopes of lead really make a check within the same system. So the understanding of the half-life and the decay constant, which is a constants we need to be able to calculate the ages uh, after we measure the parent and daughter ratios. That's all very well understood. And then zircon is the gold standard for the uranium-lead system because it's very robust. Uh, has a very high what's called a closure temperature. So a lot of geologic processes don't reach that temperature again to maybe reset it. Furthermore, when the zircon crystal forms, it doesn't incorporate lead. Lead is too big, whereas it'll take in uranium. When this crystal forms, there's no lead in the system. So when we take the zircon crystal now, we process it and we measure it. Any lead that's in there was created through the decay of uranium. Right, and then, so then you can basically you can be- basically measure the amount of lead that you have compared to the amount of uranium that you have and uh, calculate how much of the lead came from the uranium. And because you know how long it takes for a certain amount of uranium to become lead, and you know that because you know the, uh, the decay constant from uh, parent to daughter of a radiogenic element, uh, then that's how you can basically estimate how long ago that that uh, crystal was formed. Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay. But but help me out here because you confirmed my suspicions that you know zircon is a pretty cool mineral and it's um, very useful in telling how old the rocks are. So why would you use any other mineral to you know to date anything? Yeah, good point. So why wouldn't we just use zircon to answer all of our questions? Yeah, I mean, you, it seems to me like we could simplify this whole thing and just use zircon for everything. In some geologic processes, zircon might just not form. So you, you can't use the zircon to crystallize if it never crystallized to start with. So then there are other minerals and potentially other systems, say 
and mafic minerals, you can have plagioclase or a potassium feldspar, and you can do the potassium argon method. In the case of zircon, and one reason we like zircon so much for geochronology is it takes a very, very high temperature to really affect that system. So it's very robust through a lot of processes of geologic history. Right. So if you're looking for processes that happen at lower temperatures, then it, it, they, won't, they wouldn't affect the zircon necessarily. Exactly. So if you look at zircon and there's only low temperature processes, you'll never see them. They might as well not have happened if you're only looking at zircon. So then that's where bringing other uh, minerals in, maybe uh, some of the micas, biotite, muscovite, that have lower temperatures. Plagioclase as well has a lower temperature. Maybe rutile. There's a lot of different minerals that all behave differently depending on what temperature they're set, they're, uh, they experience throughout the geologic history. So you sold me on the uranium lead system, but now I don't understand why, you know, when I was watching CSI the other day, they were using carbon to date and not uranium lead. Right. Yeah. So uranium lead is a great system, but it won't answer all of your questions. And part of that uh, in relation to the carbon system is the time scales you're looking at, the time lengths you're looking at. The amount of time it takes for uranium to decay to lead is very, very long time scales, whereas carbon decays very, very quickly. So if you're looking at something quite young, carbon will decay really quickly. So it'll give you enough material to be able to measure. But the flip side of that is it will also decay away very, very quickly. So if you're looking at something a thousand years old, maybe tens of thousands of years old, the carbon system is really great. Whereas the uranium system won't be that great. Something that formed a thousand years ago, there, there's not enough lead that would have been generated. Or what's really cool about radiogenic isotopes is you can look at different elemental systems and get different information. So maybe we look at uranium decaying to lead, or maybe we look at uh, the Sumerian Edimium system or rubidium strontium. What's really cool is all of these systems behave differently in geologic processes. So one might be best to look at in this specific case over another system, or maybe you look at both systems and compare the differences because they will behave differently. When we talk about uranium, I have to say, immediately my mind goes to yellow cake. And yellow cake, it's not just another name for carrot cake, it's actually a compound that is used in nuclear power plants and in atomic bombs. It's basically a very, very concentrated compound of radiogenic uranium. And, you know, although I, my mind goes into these like massive amounts of radiation and massive amounts of uranium, it's, it's not the case in most of the this, this stuff that you study. These different isotopes that we're discussing, they are present in these uh, rocks and minerals that the geoscience uh, study in very low amounts. Uh, we're, we're often talking about parts per million or even parts per billion sometimes. Uh, putting into perspective, 1 ppm, which stands for part per million, is 0.00. .00 zero one percent so basically that's zero point and then followed by three zeros and one 
to make it even uh, easier for you to understand, if you have 100 ppm of uranium in a certain mineral, that means that one gram of that mineral will contain only one microgram of uranium. And that's because we're talking about uranium as a whole. If you start talking about all the different isotopes that are added from the uranium content, they are even a smaller fraction of that one microgram. And when you stop and think about that, you start to realize that you need to have procedures in place that can measure these tiny, tiny amounts of isotopes, and they need to be done in very high precision. And that's basically your job, right? Yes, exactly. That's my job is to measure uh, these elements of very, very, or isotopes of very, very small amounts. And uh, and a lot of your focus in, in research is in improving the techniques and improving the capabilities of the procedures and the instruments that uh, that are put in place in order to to get these this data, right? Yeah, exactly. A lot of what I've been doing throughout my geologic career so far has been to develop or refine or sometimes even just take a well-known procedure and set it up in another lab. Okay. So obviously we're talking about, you know, very high-end instruments here, right, in order to be able to um, to measure uh, all of these uh, small amount of isotopes. What kind of instruments do you use to manage uh, measuring all of these uh, different isotopes? We actually use a vast range of instrument types, but let's say for isotope work, the most common, maybe larger family of instruments that we use are instruments called mass spectrometers. Some of the instruments we use can be huge room size instruments, maybe these large geometry instruments. Some are actually as small as maybe on the, the size of a desk that you could fit at your desk. So there's a lot of different sizes, a lot of different types of mass spectrometers that all have their strengths or uses of what question they're able to answer and address best. Uh, a lot of these different instruments have strengths in their, let's say, their sample introduction system that would determine what question or the hypothesis you're trying to address. So, you know, some might be an in-situ method, let's say. So that actually means you take the sample, maybe a thin section or a mount, and you use a ion beam or an argon plasma or a laser, and that's how you would ionize the sample. Uh, and those have their strengths if you're dealing with, let's say, metamorphic samples or, or samples with overgrowths and potentially different ages involved within that growth. So maybe it has an old core and a young rim. Having that in situ is very, very strength with that uh, for those questions. Well, the, the alternative would be methods that you dissolve the whole sample, which with these techniques, typically you're able to obtain higher precisions. So if you're dealing with a geologic process that maybe, again, only happened a few millions of years, tens of million years apart, then you really need that high precision to be able to distinguish those two. One instrument that we use is called a thermal ionization mass spectrometer. And that one is really the instrument that will produce the highest precisions, the, the, the lowest uncertainties in your uh, analytical geochemical 
tool set of instruments. The instrument itself is very, very sensitive, but the real strength in addition to that instrument sensitivity is how we process it with a method called isotope dilution. And with that method, what we're doing basically is doping our sample with a known amount of an isotope and then measuring it and using that information, we're able to calculate the ages or the isotope ratios. Something you always have to be aware of is matrix effects. So when you have a sample, or let's say you take a rock or even a mineral, that mineral is made up of a lot of different types of elements. So it's never just one element. There's lots of stuff in there, but we might be only interested in one. So take, uh, so even when you have ideal minerals, like, like let's say a diamond that's, that's uh, made up of one uh, element, carbon, there will be other things in there. There's always impurities. In the case of digesting material, there's uh, inclusions that will also digest and then flood a lot of elements in. But one, one main aspect, major aspect of isotope dilution is that there's a lot of sample processing beforehand. And what we do is use methods, and this is a lot of the work that I actually actively do is developing and using methods to isolate the specific element or handful of elements that you're interested in. So this way we can try and get rid of a lot of the potential riffraff that might cause problems. Right, so you basically take a, a little rock or a little mineral that you dissolve and you bring it into a lab and you, what, what do you do, do you separate uh, how do you separate uh, the elements that you're trying to measure? I take a rock or a mineral that, again, would have a huge amount of elements within it. And at the end, I want one or two or a handful. And the way we do that is we digest the sample and then put it in through a chromatography technique. So doing a, a, a procedure of different uh, chemical reactions, we're able to, at the end of the day, bring out let's say the uranium and the lead, to go back to the uranium lead system. And then we're left with just the uranium lead. So right. now we can measure a very clean solution. Right. I can definitely see the, uh, the upside on that because when we blast the mineral here with the laser, baby, everything that was there is just gone, poof. Everything that, that was in the path of that laser beam is coming inside the instrument. And that's exactly one of our main struggles uh, with the with laser ablation ICPMS is that uh, you definitely do have uh, different elements in there that you're not necessarily interested in that affect um, how well you can you know you can measure the ones that you're actually trying to measure. So yeah, that, it's really really interesting that with isotope dilution you can kind of like uh, get over this uh, this issue. Yeah, it's one of the biggest strengths, and it's it's. And it's still widely used today. And it's been what's determined trace element data for all your various types of standards, isotopic standards. Everything has really been determined. Those values that you might reference would have been determined through the isotope dilution method. Okay, so now it's time for 
three little questions that I'm sure everybody's expecting because this is how we end every show. First, how did you first decide to become a geologist, Brian? Uh, for me, it was when I first learned about plate tectonics in middle school. There was just something about that theory that I thought, this is amazingly cool. I mean, it explains so elegantly everything I grew up seeing while camping around the States. Of course, I guess as well, I'm sure influenced my desire to be a geologist was my father is a geologist. So I, I, as we camped and traveled around, I'm sure that his interest and enthusiasm in the environment we were at the time seeing rubbed off on me. The apple doesn't uh, fall far from the tree, right? Right. <laughs> uh, what are some of the specifics of the research that you are conducting at the present? So my role at the John DeLater Center is working in the Tim's facility. And a lot of our work is through contract work of different projects coming in. Uh, the bulk of those projects are within the rhenium osmium system. So a lot of times we're looking at uh, trying to determine the age of mineralization of different ore bodies. Uh, but I guess the uh, other part of what I work on in this facility is developing new techniques we can use. So not necessarily novel techniques that have never been done before, but implementing them in our facility, such as utilizing whole rock, strontium, neodymium, lead isotopes. The high-precision lead isotopes that we used on that paper that we mentioned in the game, the 4D uh, model for Nimbus, that's uh, that's something that you and I set up together. That was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. And it's not something that we developed. It's just something that was out there and we made it happen in our facility. And then we actually did take a little step further by... Uh, developing that little drop of uh, HBR technique to take in the the dissolved galena that uh, it's like you know a pseudo in situ method yeah yeah exactly and that goes back to exactly what sort of draws me to the analytical side of things is doing that kind of work it doesn't necessarily have to be creating something completely novel that we're doing just sort of tweaking or fine-tuning a technique that might already be out there. And then finally, what do you enjoy doing when you're not geology? Well, I'm sure this is going to sound very unique, but <laughs> what's drawn me to geology and probably most geologists is our love for being outdoors. So when not researching, I'm usually found doing things outside. Uh, most of the time at the moment, because it's the triathlon season, it's training for a triathlon. But I love rock climbing, camping, doing any kind of backpacking or bikepacking around. I mean, our planet is such a beautiful, amazing, diverse place. It never gets real. It never gets old exploring. Bryant, I would like to thank you for joining us today in this episode of Nice Chats. Um, I think that uh, this was really cool. I mean. This is uh, the second time we record this episode because we actually did um, this same episode as a pilot that we never put out. And we just thought, man, it was so cool because we learned so much about, you know, isotopes that uh, it really deserves to be out there for everyone to enjoy. So we we added the new game and we, man, this is a, this is a really cool one. I think a lot of people can learn 
some nice stuff about isotopes. So thank you. Yeah, I hope so. Maybe we'll get a few people that like it as much as we do now. This podcast is brought to you by the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologist.com or wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please subscribe to Nice Chats and tell your friends about the show. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star review. Hey listeners, if you enjoyed this episode of Nice Chats, you will be happy to learn that Bryant and I have a session on the Goldschmidt 2021 conference. This session is all about how technical development can help in better understanding the evolution of the Earth. It allows us to extract more information from the rocks that are available to us. For more information on how to participate of this session, look for session 3A, Expanding the Geological Record with New Analytical Techniques on the Goldschmidt program, which I will put a link to in this episode's notes. In the notes, you will also find Brian's Twitter. Please follow him to find out what his latest research adventures are. At Bryant Ware. Bryant with a T at the end, despite of what most coffee shops insist on writing on his cup. We also add the papers that we've mentioned in this episode, and I will leave you with the final thought. Next time you're on holiday, maybe bring me a shirt. Yeah, I think it's uh, definitely like um, important that in every step of our career, you know, uh, you have someone to, um, you know, someone to that that like gave you like a lot of uh, whatever. Let's just cut that. (laughs) 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 I was trying to (laughs) say to make a thought, and I was like, wait. (laughs) Um, <laughs> <laughs>